service when you were playing that song. I was trying to figure out what the heck my glorious meant. And then I realized Martin Smith wrote that. He's a Brit. It's a Brit phrase. It just means that's glorious. Like, I'll see it and it'll be like, wow, that's amazing. I was just like, I finally was like, oh, it's Martin Smith. It's a Brit phrase. I get it. So, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's I'm a little slow. I'm a little slow. It's English. It's English. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's another racial slur. I can't believe it. Um, man. Um, hey, if you have a Bible, there's, uh, open it up to 1 Corinthians. If you don't, there's one right in front of you. And uh, open it to 1776. The page number, not the year. And um, listen, if you're, um, if you're new or if you got dragged here because it's Mother's Day or whatever, um, we're, you're, it's going to be kind of, you're going to be like, whoa, what did I walk into? And um, because we're talking about judgment and church discipline, all this kind of stuff. And um, here's, here's why we're talking about this. It's not because we want to talk about judging people and it's really fun, but just because we, as a church, we like to preach through books of the Bible because it lets Scripture kind of bring up the issues we're going to talk about rather than me just deciding because most people agreed that I'm pretty boring. And so if we just let the Bible do it, it's more helpful. And so this is just what's next. It just turns out after 1 Corinthians chapter 4 is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And so this is what we're talking about. And so this is the third week of it. And then we're going to move on to all kinds of other fun things. So, um, let me read. Um, this is chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 9 and read to verse 12. See, Apostle Paul writing to the church in a city called Corinth, and he writes, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world but now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And that last bit is a quote from the book of Deuteronomy, and it's in there like five times. So let's, uh, let's start with this, okay? Um, there's a whole lot of stuff that you might see in there if you're newer and you'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? But I, listen, there's two 50-minute sermons that preceded this, okay? So if you're new, everybody else has already had 100 minutes on this, okay? I can't go back, and you'll thank me when you realize how long you're going to be here. So, um... Let's start out with a thought experiment, okay? So if you're a parent of, of kids between 5 and 15, it won't be a thought experiment for you. It'll be just life. Um, but if you're not, if you're either not in that life stage or you somehow blessedly avoided it or whatever, um, imagine for a minute that you are a parent um, and you're a parent of kids, you know, 0 to 20, somewhere in there in the formative years. And I want you, I want you to ask yourself this question. Um, what is the maximum level of negative discipline. If things went as bad as possible, what is the maximum level of negative discipline you would be willing to exert in your child's life for their good? If everything went as bad as it could possibly go, what are you prepared to do? The maximum possible negative discipline for their survival, for their good. What are you prepared to do? What is it? My dad used to say, I brought you into this world and I can, apparently that's just a saying 
So he probably, apparently he wasn't going to kill me, but um, for, most, for most parents, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of if things got bad enough, it was um, you'd cut them off. You can't live here until something changes. You've got to go. Um, you can't treat your mother like this, and I can't make her leave. So you, you're, you're gone, and you just let me know when something has changed. Um, or, son, I'm not going to bail you out this time. I mean, not with the bondsmen. I mean, like, um, or there's some point where you would have to engage in some profound level of shame and separation from your child um, so, and withhold the nurturing you would love to give um, because you're just down to that. You're just down to that. Um, and here's why I think uh, every person needs to go through that thought experiment. Um, because one, you better already be ready for it when it comes. If you wait um, till your kid is, you know, 18 and had his, on his third method arrest before you figure out, decide what you're really willing to do and what you're capable of to help them, you, you, it's not a good time because you're, you're already in an altered state of consciousness, right? It's like trying to make decisions after your spouse dies as to whether or not God is with you. That's your, you can't, you're crazy. You're going to be crazy for 24 months. You're not well mentally. You can't make any mental decisions. So you go back to what you thought before they died. You believed God was with you. That, that was the most rational moment in your life in the last however long it's been. Go back to that and now just apply that because you're not in a place to be making new rational decisions, right? Same thing. Your kid goes buck nuts crazy. You're going to go into an altered state of consciousness for the foreseeable future. You better have this worked out in a rational state. So you should ask the question right now. But the second is this. Once you realize that and you imagine that eventuality, the question then becomes, what are you prepared to do between this day and that day to prevent it? What are you willing to do between this day and that, that day to prevent it? Um, and that's, listen, I think that's one of the reasons why, as a church, we have to honestly face and look at this passage. The whole bit of it. The whole, like, throw this guy out, expel the immoral brother from, you know, like, you cannot, like, it's, this is really tough stuff. And, um, and it probably, for a lot of people who may be here, who you did not have good church experiences growing up. I mean, you were that kid that, you, you were running in the church, and some guy, like, yelled at you and said, listen, this is God's house. And you do not run or laugh or be generally happy in God's house. Right? I mean, if that was you, then, you know, I haven't even mentioned, breathe a word of this stuff, and it's kind of like, you need some kind of sedative just to, like, not hyperventilate, you know? I mean, just, and so any of this talk of this, you probably have a very strong emotional reaction to it. But, but I think, listen, we've got to talk about this stuff, and here's why. Because um, if we will really face this, then I think we'll become the kind of Christians that are willing to do everything we can to make sure this doesn't have to happen. That we're the kind of people who've settled in our hearts. If this has to be done, we will do it. Just like as parents, we've got to settle in our hearts. Listen, if my kid gets to that point, and, and listen, you might think I'm in a dream world about what my kids are going to be like. Listen, I've met a lot of pastor's kids. You know, I don't know if you've ever met any pastor's kids, but listen, it is, it is by far not a crazy idea that one or all of my kids are going to go crazy. Like, I realize I have to get this settled in my heart right now because who knows what I'm going to— I have no idea— and so, 
right, I, but it's also, it'll also change me right now. I will do something this afternoon with Rachel to fortify her heart and to love her and to prepare her for what's coming because I don't want to do that when she's 19. I don't want to have to do this. And it will change us all. We will, we will all do Christianity differently on all kinds of levels, not in relation to this kind of discipline, because we are prepared to do it. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's what I think we need to say about this from this passage. That church discipline, this action of separating this person, separating from, and even inducing shame onto this person in this kind of dramatic way um, is, is church discipline at its furthest level, and we need to recognize, biblically speaking, that it is necessary in the church and it is forbidden toward the world. Now, that distinction of church and world is just—the Bible says the world, and it, it just means people for whom something other than Jesus is the ultimate authority. Okay? So the—Augustine the, called it the city of man and the city of God. In the city of man, some human is the final authority, some ideology, or you— you're the final authority in your life. You live in the city of man. I don't care what you say your religion is. If the ultimate authority in your life is you or some other human ideology or some other human person, you live in the city of man. That's where your citizenship is. That's where you live. That's what you are. And that's okay. As long as you're still alive. It's okay. And you just have to deal with that. Okay, that's reality. It's better to think about reality than something else. And then there's the city of God. And the city of God is a place where Jesus is king. And you're, you know, important in a way, sort of. But Jesus is king, and he's the one in control, and he's the one who has the authority, and you've recognized that he's better at it than you, and that's how it goes. And, and these two are distinct. It, Paul refers them as the church and the world, right? The church, the called out family of God, and there's the world. And he says, listen, in the church, this has to be done. It's necessary. You must do it. It is both your right and your responsibility, and you have to do it, like I said, the last sermon for 50 minutes in the right ways, by the right practice, for the right reasons, for the blah, blah, blah. Okay? It's on the website. But it must be done. But in relationship to the world, the city of man, it is forbidden to be done. You do not have the right, and therefore not the responsibility, to use separation and shame to try to coerce people to behave like they believe in Jesus when they don't. They're going to have to have their own conversation with Jesus about that. That is God's direct responsibility. He has no mediating judges to the world. He judges the world directly, not through us. We can be assigned to the world, but we are not the judges of the world, and we have no right to do that. And you've got to have that, that distinction clear in your mind. Does that make sense? Okay, um, I'm going to skip a bit because I went really long last service here. So let's look at three things in relationship to this. The first is, um, church discipline is forbidden in the world or toward the world. And that is to say this, um, we should not separate from or discipline people of the world or in the city of man. We shouldn't do that. Um, separation and shame, the two final tactics of church discipline, cannot be used to coerce people who do not believe in Jesus to act like they do. And it's important to recognize, um, it's important to recognize this. There's a lot of people who, in fact, last service, there were like some amens to that. So they, apparently some people have been judged, right? Um, there were some amens to that. But here's the, here's the thing that's important to recognize. Almost everybody has some groups of people that are obviously 
not the sharpest knife in the moral shed, you know, but they don't have a problem not hating them, right? So for a lot of people, they're people, and they're just really sexually immoral. I mean, it's bad, but, you know, they don't really have a problem with it, you know? She didn't have a daddy in her life, and blah, 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 and, you know, it, it's not a big deal to them. Um, and, and, so the, and so when you say, listen, you can't judge the world, they go, amen, quit judging my friends, and Yes, you know, she's a loser magnet, but so, you know what? So are you, and what, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but here's the, here's the thing. Almost everybody has another group that they really do hate, and they just, they don't think about it, right? And so I love this list because it's got the people that the, that the, like, conservative people really have a problem with, the people who are personally irresponsible, like people who are sexually immoral, and people who end up becoming single moms, or people who can't keep a job, and they don't work hard, and they didn't go to school long enough, and look at how much debt they're in, and blah, 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 blah. And then they have all the people the Democrats hate, the swindlers, and the, like, the greedy, and all this stuff, right? It's great. It's a great list, because you really hate that other group, and you don't want to admit it because the other group of sinners you actually kind of like, okay, fine. And so you think you're pretty open-minded. But here's the reality is, it's probably, and that's probably not universally true. Because honestly, I, as a pastor, I hear everybody's sob story. I mean, I, I mean, I have people come into my, into my office with like, I mean, histories of inc- I mean, you incest and like rape and I mean, just people who have abused children. I mean, just stuff that you would just really think, I ought to have a button I could push where they fall through the floor, you know, that they don't see when they come in, but it's there just in case the special ones, you know. But, but honestly, as a pastor, like, you just hear enough of that stuff, and you're just like, you, you get used to the idea that human beings are capable of, of, every, of everything. I'm capable of all of those things, given the right set of circumstances and the right set of spiritual choices, and we're just, we're broken critters, and you just gotta, you take them where they are, and you see where you can get to, and you, you, t- you tell them the gospel. And that Jesus died for them. And now where can we go? Um, But there are some people that just, man, I still feel like they ought to know better. Like, I have a really hard time with people who cause trouble but don't want a solution. You know what I'm talking about? It's people, they'll yell at you, and they'll, like, stomp around, and they're really angry. And and, and you're like, okay, well, how can we figure this out? What are some solutions? And you give them, like, five, six, seven, eight perfectly workable solutions, and they don't like any of them. And I I mean, I really—I get to the point where I want to, like— I want to do something to them, you know? Like, I get so angry. I'm like, how can you be so nuts, right? But a single mom comes in my office with, like, the third kid. And I'm just like, sweetie, how can we help you? Man, I just, oh, what can we— It's just the way we're wired. There are some people we are prejudiced for and prejudiced against in the array of sin— and we just, we don't judge some people, and we think that we're not judgmental because there's some people we don't judge. But that's baloney. Most of us have another sector of people that we think there's a special place in hell for, and that these people are no longer human, and they, you know, probably voted for that gubernatorial candidate. You know, one or the other. And we need to realize that and not be self-righteous about it and try to figure out who are the people in the that group of people of the world, the city of man, that we, we don't love. And, and we are shaming and separating. In fact, I got a letter. Okay, I'm gonna tell you about this. You got a minute? I got a letter from somebody who said, I don't know how to say this so it's not political because it was political. And they said, listen, I know your kind of church and your kind of church is the kind of place Republicans and Libertarians can hide. And I was just like, really? Really? So if the church really followed Jesus, there would not be a church where any of those dirty, like, seriously? 
that, are, is that not insane? Like, and, and it, it's not because of my political convictions. It's just because of that notion. And he, it was like, this is spiritual. Like, don't you realize that, that you cannot let that sin of greed and like crushing the poor hide at your church? You really need to. And I'm just like, dude, everybody gets to come to my church, okay? Everybody does. Most people have no idea what they're doing when they vote. They don't know the details. They don't know the people. They don't know what the policies are going to affect. They have no idea the economic secondary consequences. Were comp- oh, 98% of us are completely incompetent to vote anyway. And wh- why on earth would I distinguish between people on the basis of that? It's stupid. But this guy was really serious. But if I was like, hey, do you have trouble loving single moms? He'd be like, oh man, those poor girls, they probably, oh, what can we do for them? But if you're a sinner who votes red, for God help you, right? And you, I mean, there's, you know, there's people that think just the other way. That, oh, there's, there's churches that let Democrats in, right? That's crazy. It's not crazy, right? It, um, and, and this is the list. The list is like, listen, don't separate, not just from the sexual moral. It literally says swindlers, like people who steal money from others, like your friend. They steal money from your friend. You don't have the right to separate and shame them on behalf of Jesus. You don't have that right. Sorry. Period. Idolaters, he just goes through a whole bunch, whole group of them. It's really everybody he's referring to, and you just don't have the right. Period. And so, so we need to make sure we don't fall into the self-righteousness trap of, because I like this group of sinners, we'll be nice to this group of sinners, but this group of sinners will be self-justified and hating because they should know better by now. And they really do need our shame and separation a little bit. So they start voting right, or they start acting right, or they start behaving right, or they start living on the right side of town, or they go to get enough education, or they pay off their debt, or whatever. We need to be really careful about that. And not go, oh, amen, Nick. That's right, we don't judge the world. We're not a judgmental church. Everybody's judgmental. It's where. And are you humble enough to listen to the gospel and try to figure out where, and try to grow a little bit in the area? Are we ready to do that? Okay, let's move on. There's a couple places where there is a limit in this whole issue of separation where he says, listen, you're not supposed to separate from the world, but there are certain kinds of partnerships that are sufficiently intimate that you cannot engage in them with somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus if you do. And th- there's, there's three that come up in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the book he wrote as a companion to this. Um, and he- here are a couple of them. I just need to briefly state them because I don't want you to be unclear on this. And the first is marriage. The Bible stipulates in a number of places that um, if you are a believer in Jesus, you do not have any business marrying somebody who isn't. The, the Bible teaches a number of places, not least 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that, um, that you're, you're better off not married. And I know that, that probably sounds draconian to some of you to be like, are you kidding? If you, somebody has to have their needs met and they, they feel lonely and they could marry somebody, you would deny them that, Nick? And when they could be happy and, um, and listen, I just don't dare disagree with Jesus on that. And I, I think that we have a, um, an addiction to certain Applications against loneliness and our sexual desires that just aren't biblical at all. And I, I think that we need to just, we need to first listen to what God's advice is and then figure out how we would work with that. And the Bible is just really clear that there is no union meant to be more intimate than marriage. 
And if at the center of your heart and overflowing into all of it is that you live in the city of God because Jesus is King and Lord and Master of everything, to think that you can bond and bind your life with somebody who doesn't share that and that be what it's supposed to be um, is, is extremely naive. And you are either overestimating your faith in Jesus, how important Jesus is to you, dramatically, or you are overestimating how well those two different worldviews mixed together in terms of intimacy. The second is, is business. In 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 6, there's this section on that, and the verses are there if you want to look it up, but I, don't, I can't dwell here very long. And basically, the argument is, and think, think about it, you, I mean, you might say, that's crazy. I mean, to say that you might not want to go, in, I'm not talking about working for somebody, I mean going into a business partnership, starting a company or something like that. And you might be like, that's just crazy. I mean, you just need to find people who know how to do business, know how to make money, know how to create products, know how to get them in market. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you ought to be looking for, not whether somebody's a Christian or not. And I understand, listen, I understand that perspective, but here's what you need to understand. There's very little so intimate as going into business with somebody. You will bind your future, the economic well-being of your family, and the moral, the pressure on all the moral decisions you will make together with that person in an extremely dramatic fashion. And here's, here's the thing you need to understand. People make decisions consistent with their view of the world. And if people believe, if people really believe that when push comes to shove, if you need to lie to get from here to there, they'll lie. And, um, and I, listen, I cannot tell you the number of Christians I've had in my office who've said, you know, I feel like I should know better, but I went into business with this guy, and I watched him lie to clients, little white lies to clients, but I never dreamed he'd lie to me about, about our balance sheet. And, um, and now I'm a quarter million dollars in the hole, or I invested a quarter million dollars into this condo rebuild, and now they've made $47 million, and they're not going to give me even my money back, much less my share of the profits. And now it's going to be tied up in court for maybe a decade. And listen, I, I cannot tell you the number of people, number of those conversations that I've had. And they, and listen, those conversations go a lot like the marriage conversations. I thought I should marry this guy. I thought I should marry this girl. I thought he'd come around. I thought she'd come around. And then this happened, blah, blah, blah. The, the business, it's, mar- the, it's a business marriage. It's a marriage. It's, 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 it's in all but one way just as intimate. And you are relying on each other dramatically, and it's, it's probably—I'm not going to say biblically it is outright sin if you, if you get into business at all with somebody but what I'm just saying is you need to be a lot wiser than we normally are and much less naive about this than I think we come there. And then the third one is, is sin. You just can't go that way. There's, if, if you have a lot of non-Christian friends, that's, that's probably really good. You don't want to be one of these people for whom church doesn't just help you with your life. Your church is your life. I don't think that that's healthy. It's great if you have non-Christian friends, and if you have a lot of them, that's, that's great. And if, you know, if you work out in the marketplace, you're just gonna. You know, you spend more time with the people you work with than your wife or husband, right? And so you're gonna have that. But here's the thing. If you have a lot of Christian friends and it doesn't ever create any tension at all, there's probably something wrong because they're probably not secretly following Jesus. You're probably just not making any distinctions. And um, there, are, there are some points where, where you probably should be saying, um, yeah, that movie I'm going to watch when it gets cut for television. Um, or, listen, li- I, listen, I know you want to talk about this. 
about what's going on with your wife, and I am totally cool with us going out and having a beer and doing that, but let's go to this pub and not that bar. Would you go with me to this, this place and not that place? Because at that, that place is designed to stir up in me everything I'm supposed to be putting to death, and I just can't go there. I, I need to go here, so can we do that? Um, there, there should be some places where that happens for you. And you don't say, listen, I, I don't, if you're a sinner, you're, you're over there and I'm over here. No, it's basically a path and they're going to go down that one. And you're going to be like, look, I'm going to keep going on this one. And this one, that one curls back around. And so I'll just meet you up there a little ways. So, um, you know, be safe and uh, we'll, we'll, catch, we'll catch up. I mean, there should be some places where you don't ostracize this person or, or separate out of, out of the uh, trying to coerce them. You just say, listen, if you're going to go that way, I can't go that way, so I'll just meet up with you up here. And you just do it as diplomatically and non-judgmentally as you can. That's all. Does that make sense? This means yes, this means no. Okay. Um, which means there's a limit to how far you can stretch the whole cultural integration thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was a time where among, like, gospel-believing people, um, it was like you couldn't go to movies. You remember this? There, like, there were a lot of places, churches, you couldn't wear makeup. You couldn't go to movies at all, even if they were, like, G-rated. Um, you know, Disney movies were considered especially satanic. And it was, that was kind of the mentality, right, for in a lot of churches. And, and I think for the most part, a lot of those kind of rules came from kind of good motives in the sense that, um, you know, makeup, you know, led into this whole idea that looks are really important and that's how people should be valued. And so you can see like that there's sort of some kind of Christian sort of justification really stretched for some of these things. You know, and if, and if it's, you're referring to the movie The Little Mermaid, I'm with you on the whole Disney thing. But, you know, anyway, um, I like Tangled. Uh, so... <laughs> But um, then there was kind of this, this sort of evangelical, which I'm, I love this, the, the move, evangelical movement, but there's sort of this thing where we're like, you know what, we need to be aware of these things. Like we cannot, how do you have a conversation about a film with a friend when you haven't seen it, right? How can you have a conversation about a book with a friend if you haven't read it? How, I mean, how can you talk about makeup with your coworker if you're not allowed to wear any and they just think that you're crazy? part of this, like, cult over there, and the water, you know, like, how does that even work? And so, there's this movement over the last 25 or 30 years of, like, you know, let's get in, let's get in the world, let's get in there, and let's, let's handle these things, so we understand them, we can interact with people, we can talk about them, we can theologically integrate them, and we can be culturally integrated as believers, and so on. And I'm totally on board with that. Listen, I want you to know, if anything, I am on board with that to a fault. But there have been a few times in the last year or two where I've just been like, why am I okay with this? Like, I'll be watching a movie, and I, I love watching films. I can just watch one movie after another for a couple of days, probably. And I'm watching, you know, I'll be watching something, and I'll just be like, you know, I believe that this thing I'm watching is extraordinarily objectively wicked. It's being painted in its beautiful light as though this is what a real authentic person does. And I'm, like, emotionally engaged with this character, and it's making this look better to me, and, and yet I know this— why am I doing that? Why am I watching this? Like, and I just, I, I, over the last couple of years, I've just been like, you know what? We're free in Christ, but I'm not going to watch that thing, or I'm not going to do that thing, or I'm not going to, not because I'm trying to be as legalistic as possible, but just to recognize that it's naive to think none of that stuff affects me. It does affect me. I want to watch that movie because she's in it. That's all. I can lie to myself all I want, but that's reality, right? And so, there's a limit to cultural integration. There's points where we just got to go, you know what? I'm your friend, whatever, but listen, I'm just not going to go to that film. I'm not going to go to that thing. I just, 
I'm not going to talk this way. If you're going to talk about her like that right now, I got to, I got to go. Or you got to realize that um, I don't gossip, and so therefore whatever is said here, I might repeat to her. Just because if you say it, I assume it's public knowledge about her and she can hear it too. And, you know, and, and that'll hurt you. But listen, I'll tell you what. Once everybody knows you're that person, you're the only person everybody trusts. Lexi was like that. Everybody talked terribly about her behind her back when she worked at Abbott Laboratories. But the time came when anybody who had a real problem went to her. Because she knew she, you, she would never talk about you without you there. Ever. Never say crossword. She would, she would read you the riot act to your face. But she would never go down the hall into the lounge and say anything about you. And so, and she wouldn't let you, go, and the reason everybody knew that is because she would not let you gossip to her in front of her. She'd be like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm on plane. I can't do this. I'm not having this conversation because I don't, I talk about you like that. I would never talk about you like that. So I cannot let you talk about these other people like that. They're all made in God's image. They're all, they all have dignity. I'm not, I can't play. I'm sorry. I'm going to go over here. And when this conversation is over, I'll come right back. You see? All right. So what's the next thing? Let's see what the next thing is. Church discipline is necessary in the church. Now, I talked about this already in former sermons. And so here's what I want to say this morning for a couple of minutes. We have been conditioned to believe that separation and shame are never okay. We are still Freudian people. We believe that guilt and shame are fundamentally illegitimate emotions, fundamentally illegitimate um, interpersonal interactions, and that if anybody does anything to you that could cause you to feel guilt or to feel personally ashamed, what you need to do is recognize that that person is way out of line, and whatever they're saying, whatever they're doing is manipulative and illegitimate, and what you need to realize is you're not on earth to fulfill their expectations, or or them yours, and you should just self-affirm and Go find some people that can tell you you're fantastic just the way you are. That, I mean, that's the fundamental cultural psychology that we believe in in relationship to separation and shame. And listen, that's just bull. Um, the, the issue, shame, is necessary and therapeutic in very specific, very limited situations. There are times in which to not exert separation and shame is fundamentally immoral. And then all the rest of the times to exert it is fundamentally moral. And the question is not, is it, is it okay or isn't it? Universally, it's neither one. It's when and why and for what purpose. Um, last week I talked about, okay, so anyway, whether or not separation is important, I'm just, here's the verses, they speak for themselves. There's that slide, there's that slide. If you want to hear more on that, listen to last hour's version of the sermon. But you're at this hour's, and so we're going to talk about the other one. We're going to talk about shame because I didn't talk about that last hour. Um, here's the thing I think, I think it's really important. There, there is this—the word for shame in, in the New Testament is, is the passive for respect. So the, remember there's this place where um, there's these people that grow this farm, but it belongs to this other guy. And so when the fruit comes ripe, a portion of it is supposed to be given to the landowner. And so he sends messengers to go get it, and they throw them out, and they kill a few of them. And eventually he says— the very last, he says, I'm going to send my son. And what does he say? They will respect my son, right? That's the active. That is, that is, they would be ashamed to do anything to him. Because to do something to my son would be outside even their bounds of decency. Because even this guy, these people who have beaten and killed other servants, 
When he sends his son, he recognizes that even at that level of depravity, these people would be ashamed to do more, to kill his son. So he sends his son. What happens in the parable? They kill him, right? And then he sends the army and kills all of them. It's the very last thing. Um, similarly, in the other cases of the use of the word shame, it's, it's basically, it's a passive. It's that, um, it's that a level of proper human respect and reverence for things that actually are important, if you don't step up to the plate, it demonstrates that that's not there, and therefore there's something fundamentally defective about you as a human being. And so the, the moment where, where reverence or respect is pushed, it forces you to make an identity choice as to what kind of a human being you are. Are you one that has respect, or are you one that is unashamed? The assumption there is that for an emotionally healthy human being, there are some points where you, there's things you can't do simply because you would be ashamed to do them. You wouldn't be able to live with what you necessarily are based on the decision you've made. And at those moments where that emotional thing has to happen, shame is what's necessary. Because you never shame somebody. You always put in front of them a decision. What are you going to do? They shame themselves, or they demonstrate that they're a person of respect. I remember when I was in, in seminary, and Lexi's and my marriage was just in the toilet. I mean, it was just terrible. I went to this counseling professor, and I said, listen, here's where it is. I just, I hate my wife's guts, and I just wish I didn't marry her, and oh my gosh, if I could do this over. And, um, and he sat there, and I, I really, honestly, I thought that he hadn't heard a word I said, but because of what he said, but here's what he said. He said, he said, yeah, but you love her. And I was just like, listen, I just got done telling you. I mean, that's what I'm thinking. I just got done telling you I hate her, right? And he's like, you know, and she's your wife. And you want her to be the mother of your children, you know? And I was like, I was like, I'm thinking, I just told you that I want her to be a liner to the bottom of Lake Michigan, okay? I, what do you mean I want her to be the mother? Are you cr but you see what he's doing? I'm a seminary student. I'm supposed to be a Christian man growing into somebody that's supposed to be like a model Christian, and he was basically calling me. He was basically saying, listen, here's what a Christian man is. A Christian man is a man who, when he hates his wife's guts, he realizes she's his wife, she's, he's supposed to love her, and that she, if they're going to have any children, she's going to be the mother of his children. And either you're that guy or you're not that guy. And you better make a choice. That's what he was saying. He was kind of being nice. He's trying to be nice. But that's what he was saying. Either you're that guy or you're not that guy, and you need to make a choice. And if you make the right choice, then you're a person of respect, and you don't need to be ashamed. And if you don't, then you're just revealing the kind of person that you are. What kind of person are you? And the reason he led with that is, it doesn't, he couldn't give me any advice. What, what use is advice if my sin isn't a sin of ignorance? It's a sin of presumption. Remember that from last week? Infirmity, ignorance, and presumption. If, if, if my problem is infirmity, what do I need? I need therapy, right? I need somebody to come and walk with me and help me and figure out what's gone wrong and what's gone wrong in my past and how come I want to get free of this thing, but I can't get free of it. I don't need judgment. I already believe it's wrong. I already feel guilty. I already want to get free of it, so can you help me? I need therapy if my issue is infirmity. If my issue is ignorance, I need understanding. I need you to explain it to me. I need to understand the thing I don't get. And I need you to hang with me long enough so that I can understand it. I need your understanding. And I need your explanation. I need your wisdom. I need clarity, right? That's what I need. So please, right? But if my issue is presumption, if I know exactly what it is and I just don't care, then the only thing left 
is the emotional jolt of gospel confrontation where you lay down the thing and either the person chooses shame or they choose truth. And that's all that's left because all that's left is a confrontation of wills. But so many people, they go around and they act like a confrontation of wills is something you can still have a conversation about. There's a point where conversations become futile. There's no more use to confront— And then there are a lot of people— There's a lot of us, right, that get to confrontation too soon. There's a lot more discussion that can happen because you're not on the same page, and you don't understand things the same way, and there's a lot more to be explained. For example, in this passage— One of the biggest thing I struggled with biblically this week to try to interpret how to understand this was this. Why does the Apostle Paul tell these people, you need to throw this guy who's shacked up with his stepmom out of your church? But on the very next page, there are people taking other Christians to court out of the desire to swindle them. And he does not demand church discipline for them. And then one paragraph later, there are husbands who are apparently going to prostitutes fairly regularly who are in the church, and he does not call for church discipline for them either. See, I would have thought that shacking up with your stepmom and being a married man and regularly going to hookers would be generally in the same moral ballpark, okay? That's, that was my sort of—my assumption. That might be wrong, but that was what I was thinking. And so why, why this— Apparent inconsistency And I, th- I, think here's, I think here's the answer I mean, and, and you think about it more If you go back to the first four chapters There are some people who are peddling and in divisive ways Tearing this church apart And you go, oh yeah, but you're just, just, you're just tearing your church apart Yeah, this is a church that Paul almost died several times Just to get there to tell him about Jesus okay, This is a church he gave more than a year of his life To build under constant threat of death Right? I mean, he's got a bit emotionally invested in here And some people here are peddly just ripping it apart that matters, right? And it says slanderers, I mean, it says right in this passage that slanderers, people who are lyingly divisive, are people who deserve church discipline, right? So here's why. In all, in all those other passages, here's what I think the answer is, okay? I, who knows if it's right, but I think it's right. In all those other passages, he proceeds to explain something about the gospel, right? He says, listen, Here's what you need to understand about yourself. If you're taking Christians to court to sue them, he says, listen, if what you really wanted was the right thing, if that's what you, if you didn't want to swindle them, you really just wanted the right thing, here's what you do. You'd go back to the seven-year-olds and you'd get yourself a seven-year-old and you'd bring them into a conference room and you'd sit down and you'd both tell your side of the story to the seven-year-old and the seven-year-old could sort out your problem. That's, that's the reality. The reality is any objective person who can talk can figure out who's right and who's wrong and your situation could solve your issue. If you, what you really wanted was mediation and something that was fair. If you're both Christians. The reason you're taking, you, you, you're both Christians and you have to go to court to solve this is because you're really both trying to get better than your fair share and you're both swindling each other and that's why you're going to court. It's just a fact. It's just a fact. You better be honest with each other. And that's not the gospel, right? He's, he's like, that's not the gospel. And then he goes on to prostitutes. He says, listen, guys. And you got to understand in Corinth, most men— went to prostitutes with their dads from middle pubescence on. It was just, it was just really standard. It was very culturally accepted, and it's just, it was just a reality. And so these are men who are now becoming Christians, and they've been doing this for 20 years, some of them. And so to them, the idea that it's wrong is just like— 
You know, it's like, it's like a Chinese Christian or Indian Christian visiting us, and you just go out to the—you say, well, well, he's here. Let's go to a movie. And you go out and you take him to some R-rated movie. You don't even really think about what it's rated. And everybody's getting their head blown off, and there's blood splashing on the camera lens. And you're like, man, weren't the effects in that fantastic? And the, and the guy's like, oh my, oh my God, like, you intentionally watched that? Right? And we're like, well, what do you mean? That's ba- you think that's bad? Right? And because to us, like, it's just—it's universally culturally accepted. It's just— What's the big deal, right? And so these guys, they've been doing this their whole lives. And so Paul goes, listen. He goes, listen. When you believe in and trust in Jesus and regeneration happens, God, like no kidding, God comes and dwells in, in you. And your physical body, not just your spiritual whatever, but your, literally your physical body becomes a temple. It's a housing, in a way, for God. I mean, God lives in you. He's like, now think about that. God's temple is holy. Now, you really think that going to the brothel is—that's a good idea. Do you think that works? I mean, just think, just think that through. And you see what he's, he's trying to help them overcome this spiritual ignorance. Now, they might know that that classifies as sexual immorality, but they don't get it. And so Paul, instead of saying, well, look, they know it's wrong, so you throw them out of the church. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, guys, listen, you don't—you haven't put two and two together yet. Right? That's what I'm always going on when I say we have to understand the gospel. And you go, look, I know you're supposed to believe in Jesus, Nick. I get it. Like, I've heard about altar calls. And I'm like, no, we have to understand the gospel. That's what I mean. We have to put these things together. Right? And so, the reason this is important is because if you look at the issue of shame, we've got to recognize that shame is legitimate sometimes in a very narrow swath, and it's only when you are down to nothing but presumption of presumption sin in a utter clash of wills. At that moment, at the end of every other step you can possibly take, you've been through infirmity, you've been through ignorance, you're at the end, they know it's wrong, they just don't care it's wrong, you're at a clash of wills, it's all that's left. It's our job to create an emotional confrontation and to force that people, person to decide who they are. And to leave that with them so that even if they pick shame, even if they're like, look, I don't need to be judged by you. God is with me. God loves me. God accepts me just how I am. I'm going to do whatever I want. You, they need to leave with that choice, the last choice that was laid in front of them by God's community. So that whenever they want to choose to go back to that decision and make the right choice, it's, it remains for them. And we, like it says in 2 Corinthians 4, or 2 Corinthians 2, 4, we need to be just hoping and waiting and anything we can do to encourage them back to that choice to happen. So that the minute they do, we can celebrate. Does that make sense? Even if you don't like it? So then lastly, who counts and how far? This is an important issue because um, you see when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, if you became a Christian, you could die, right? The Roman Empire was not for Christianity. And so if you became a Christian, you could lose your house, you could lose all your belongings, some of your family could be killed, you could be killed. And so there were not a lot of people identifying themselves as Christians who didn't care about what Jesus wanted for them. Just weren't any, there just weren't many of those people. And so the issue that there would be people who believe in Jesus, but who don't care about what Jesus wants for their life, just it wasn't a big problem. That's not true of us, is it? It's not true of us. There are thousands and millions of American people who would self-identify as Christians. They'd say that they're a Christian. There's no evidence. I mean, you couldn't convict them of it um, from anything that happened in their life. If you, you know, if you ask them to name three books in the New Testament 
um, and one of them couldn't be a gospel or the book of Revelation, they, they'd have to have a table of contents. You know what I mean? It's like, they just don't, they don't know anything about Jesus. They don't, they just, but they're a Christian, and if you told them they weren't, gosh, they would be really mad at you and say that you're terrifyingly judgmental, right? I mean, there's, there's millions of those people, okay? So what do you do? Because those people are going to sin, right? That's going to happen. And, and so what do you do? Do you just not eat with anybody? So if any, so you can hang out with atheists, right? If they're atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Hindus, like, you can hang out with those people. But anybody who, like, was baptized Catholic but likes to binge drink, they're out. Like, that's not—that doesn't sound workable, does it? It is that what Paul means. Does that—is that what you think that's what he means? And so here's two things I think we can say about this. The first is— I would classify somebody who is spiritually nominal. That is, they would name themselves as a Christian, but you couldn't convict them of being a Christian. I mean, there's just no evidence of that they belong to Jesus. They live in the city of God where Jesus is king, and that's how they seek to live their life. Um, I would classify that person not in the realm of sin of presumption, but in the sin of ignorance. That's what I would say, that they're in the realm of ignorance, not of presumption. Like, I mean, I just think about myself when I was a Roman Catholic boy. You know, I was baptized. I went to my first communion. I got confirmed. I went to church sometimes and was an altar boy. And I listened to those really long two-minute homilies that were offered to instruct me in the faith. And I, rem- I remember a friend of mine telling me I wasn't a Christian. Like, he's like a Baptist kid. And he's like, well, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And we're like sitting in a hay bale. We're like sitting in like a hay thing, like camping out. And I was like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know what that means. He's like, well, then you're not a Christian. And I was like, you're nine. What do you mean I'm not, I'm not a Christian? I mean, like, really? But looking back, biblically speaking, I wasn't a Christian. That didn't, I, I think that God was working in my life in certain ways, but no, I was not committed to Jesus. I was not a believer. I, I, I wasn't. And, but it wasn't because I didn't want to be. It was because I didn't know what the Bible said. I had no idea. And so I would self-identify as a Christian, but I wasn't a Christian. And I, if, but if somebody came to me and be like, you know what your problem is? You're a sin of presumption. You just think you can do whatever you want, and God's just going to bless it, and what Jesus wants doesn't matter, and yet you want to call yourself a Christian. That's not reality, is it? That's not where I was, and that's not where our neighbors are. There's millions of Americans that would name themselves as Christians, and if we just decided to exert church discipline on them, that would go really well, wouldn't it? I would go, fantastic. And here's what I would say. For folks like that, I would say this. I would say, I don't think we have any right or responsibility to exert shame or separation or force of any kind toward them. I think we need to assume is that if they don't, if you can't tell they're following the Savior, then all you really should be doing, if you're going to talk about God at all, is talk about the Savior and how great He is and, and what it's like to follow Him. But I don't think that we're in any position to judge. And, here, and here's why I think there's something else that's important. So I'm going to argue with you about something um, because some of, there's some people who really just don't believe, you know, church membership is that biblical or baptism isn't that big a deal. And here's what I would say. This is exactly why baptism and church membership is a big deal. Because it clarifies people's status so that we don't judge people wrong. You see, if, if we recognize— And see, this is, let me say something controversial since I haven't done that in a while. Um, uh, this is the genius of fundamentalism, what I'm going to say right now, okay? Now, I thought it got, it got applied kind of bad in fundamentalism. That's why we're evangelicals. But the genius of fundamentalism was if you had a pure church in which it was very clear who was in the church and who was outside of the church, the result of that should be a lack of judgmentalism, not a flourishing of it. Because people who were inside the church, you could focus on growing together in faith— 
and developing and loving each other and working through, working through issues and recognizing your family. And then people outside the church, you would leave them the heck alone in a relationship to trying to coerce them into behaving like they believe in Jesus. And so it should, it should have created an opportunity in which judgmentalism went away. But instead, in a lot of cases, it created a situation in which judgmentalism flourished, right? Okay, so if we're going to get there from here, this, okay, this is the last two minutes, okay, so hang with me because this is important. There's three things I think have to be true. Because, okay, let me, let me put it this way. When I think about what is the most negative discipline I would do to one of my kids if I had to, I can imagine what it would be, but the real thing that it does in me emotionally is to say, um, I want to do anything I can do to make sure we don't get there. I will do anything to make sure we don't get there. And so if that's true, what—and if we really believe that all of our destinies are like our kids, in the sense that we're all going somewhere— and are we going, are we coming into fuller fellowship with, with God and walking with this Holy Spirit's leading, or are we not? Or are we just wandering? Are we just exploring the city of man? And that's happening to all of us. And so all, all of us are together on this. And we don't—most don't have spiritual parents. I mean, we, we got to do this for each other. What are we willing to do so that the day doesn't come where you have to do whatever that thing is? You don't have to do it to me. Because it's just a certain set of concatenation of circumstances that will get there. What are you willing to do to make sure it doesn't come to that? So that I don't sit across from you and you don't ever sit across from me having this meeting. It's time for you to go until you're willing to make a choice. And I think there's three things that have to be true about us as a community, as a church. The first is, I think this has to be a place where this is possible, where everybody here knows that if we try everything else and we ultimately get to this and it comes down to a clash of will and it's not infirmity and it is not ignorance, but it is presumption and we get there that the rest of us will have the guts to sit down with you and have this discussion. It has to be a place where we've got to know that if it comes to that, this will happen. But the second is, it has to, it has to be a place where this and everything that comes before it is done healthy. It's done for the right reasons, in the right way, in the right order, out of the right heart, out of the right context, out of the right depth of relationship and all that. And then thirdly, we have to do everything we can to make sure we don't get there. And those are these four things. I think that we have to identify value and pursue humility. Humility has got to be um, one of the absolute highest values for us. Um, and I'll do my best in modeling it, but you may not want to wait to, you know, surpass me. You just go ahead and be more humble than me, and I'll just get there when I can, okay? Um, second is, we need to be a place of spiritual fathering and mothering. We should be looking for people who can unilaterally influence us. Quit looking for peers. Peers are not nearly as valuable as people who can have unilateral influence. Somebody who can be a father or mother to you in the faith. Um, you should be looking for somebody like that. And, and if you have that capacity, you should be open to that happening. Um, and then th- third is we need to have meaningful spiritual friendships. And what I mean by that is this. I do not mean that you have Christian friends. There are too many of us who have no non-Christian friends. We have all Christian friends, and virtually none of our Christian friends are spiritual friendships. And here's, what I, here's the distinction. A spiritual friendship is—a meaningful spiritual friendship is one in which it's meaningful. That is, you talk about real, meaningful stuff. There's nothing you can't talk about. It's spiritual in that when you talk about it, you talk about how Jesus and the gospel and scripture relate specifically to what you're talking about. 
out of a mutual desire to believe, trust in, and obey Jesus, the gospel, and the scriptures. And it is a friendship. It is done out of a very clear mutual love for one another. And those two things, number two and number three, what environment are you going to get yourself into in which that tends to happen? And that's why we have small groups. It's not because I'm not busy enough. You know, it's not, I, was, I woke up one morning, I was like, you know what? I need to be busier. Let's have a small group ministry. No, we have small groups because small groups are the most predictive and helpful place in which number two and number three have an opportunity to happen. And that's why we're always on about, why don't you be in a small group? And you're like, ugh. But that's why. Because we want two and three to be true for you and for you to have an environment where you can have that opportunity. And, and listen, I believe, I believe with all my heart that if those things are true about us, we will not be what some of you really do still fear after 50 minutes of this, that we're going to become a more judgmental place. It will be just the opposite. We will be a more open-hearted, more accepting, more loving place in which hurting people will not run from us. They will flock to us as a community because of the kind of people that we are because, and because of the clarity of when you move from one group into the other so that you can come and you can listen and you don't, nobody's going to get in your face and get after you because you're just listening. You're trying to figure it out and nobody's going to expect you to act like you believe in Jesus when you don't and, that, and you can be here as long as you want to do that. But then you know when you, when you get to that place where you're like, no, what? No, what? I need people to do that. I need the Lord's discipline. I need people to get after me. I need that. Then you get yourself dunked and you become a member, and we will. Um, I'm going to pray, and then Steve is going to come up here. It's just going to take a minute. He's going to come up and introduce a few new members, people who have signed up for that from our last membership class. And we're going to do that right at the end so that um, you can just come up and meet him. It's just going to take a second, okay? So let's pray, and then Steve, why don't you come? Father, um, we pray that you'd help us to be the kind of church that can make the hard choices and that will that will look at passages like 1 Corinthians 5 and so accept your will in them that we would live in a way that they would almost never happen. And we pray that it would produce in us um, a love and a desire um, to do everything we can before that in a church in which um, we preempt this because we care about and we have candor with each other and we love each other. I just pray that you'd, you'd make that true of us all individually and then together corporately. Amen.